Our sermon this morning is entitled, The Great Mercy of God. And for our text, we'll look to Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. Jonah chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. These are the words of God. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father in God, we ask that you would unfold your word to us, that your spirit would illuminate what we hear, that you would be at work in our hearts, that we would apply it in faithful ways. Father, we are grateful for your mercy, even when we struggle to accept it. We pray that as we watch your dealings with your prophet, that you would also be dealing with us to make us more like our merciful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If what Jonah really needed was an explanation from God, as to why mercy for Nineveh was not covenant-breaking, but actually covenant-keeping, God could have given Jonah a good explanation. But what Jonah needs is not more information for his head. He needs transformation for his heart. His problem isn't fundamentally that he doesn't understand what God is doing. Jonah's problem is that he does not trust God to do what is good. For Jonah, mercy has no place in what is best. When Jonah's trust in God leaves, it takes Jonah's compassion with it. Mercy only makes sense if you have faith in God's wisdom, in God's justice, in God's faithfulness. But when it seems like mercy has come at the cost of justice, at the expense of covenant-keeping, then there are two possible responses. The response of faith is to say, God must have another way for justice to be done. There must be some way that I'm not seeing for the covenant to be kept. And because I trust God, I will sit quietly and wait for Him to show me what is just and right about this mercy that I don't understand. That's the response of faith, and that's not the response of Jonah. 
Because Jonah does not have faith that God is going to do what is good and right and just, he concludes that there is no possible way for mercy and justice to be done. There's no way that God's covenant with his people can be kept. God has moved on. He's left Israel behind. God has now chosen Nineveh. And so Jonah chooses anger instead of faith. So in Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11, God gives an object lesson to Jonah to go to work on Jonah's heart, acting out this drama in Jonah's own life to expose his hard-hearted hypocrisy, this hypocrisy that's led Jonah to hate God's mercy. Jonah is going to get a taste of a merciless God. And when God shows Jonah his own reaction to a merciless God, Jonah's going to get a glimpse of his own withered heart. In chapter 4, verse 4, God responds to Jonah's anger with this heart-searching question. Do you do well to be angry? Is your anger justified, Jonah? Instead of responding, Jonah marches off. He goes east, out of the city. And he climbs and he waits. He's watching to see if God will listen to Jonah's wisdom, change his mind one more time, and destroy Nineveh after all. Ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, going east has become something of biblical shorthand for leaving God's presence, going the wrong way. And once again, we see Jonah going east, leaving away from the presence of the Lord. He's repeating his earlier mistake. In his anger at God's mercy, Jonah is exiling himself from the place of God's mercy and blessing. God is pouring out kindness on the city of Nineveh. And Jonah says, I'd rather be anywhere but there. And so he leaves. He goes out where? Into the desert. The place of death. The place where there is no water, there is no life, and where the sun will kill Jonah. Israel knows this is the place you go when you complain against God. The wilderness wandering had taught them that. And yet, that's where Jonah goes. All the biblical clues are telling us that what Jonah is doing is very, very bad. But Jonah, of course, is oblivious to all of this. So he goes and he, he makes himself a booth for shade. And it's a little bit like uh, covering himself with a fig leaf to hide from God. Because like with the fig leaf... Man's efforts to hide or shade himself were insufficient. And a couple verses later, God provides a shade for Jonah that's better than Jonah's own shade. But Jonah sits there waiting for God to change his mind and destroy Nineveh after all, since Jonah has made it clear to God that it's either Jonah or Nineveh. He thinks he's being Moses, standing in the gap, protecting the covenant people, but actually he is one of those rebellious covenant people complaining against God. But how does God respond to his prophet? We shouldn't be surprised. Once again, more mercy comes Jonah's way. God appoints a plant, just like before he had appointed a whale to come and save his angry prophet from discomfort, says the English Standard Version, 
But really, this is yet another new English word for the same Hebrew word for evil that we've seen time and again in these previous verses. Jonah's efforts to save himself with the booth were not enough. Just like the sailors couldn't save themselves in chapter 2 by rowing harder, God intervenes to save Jonah, and he does so with this plant. So when Jonah receives this unexpected, miraculous mercy, he rejoices with joy. We don't always see this in the English, but the Hebrew doubles up this word. He rejoices with joy, which is the complete opposite of his reaction to God's mercy on Nineveh in chapter 4, verse 1, where Jonah is eviled with evil instead of rejoicing with joy. Mercy for me, Jonah thinks, but not, not for you, Nineveh. But remember, Jonah thinks that he's entitled to mercy. He's a covenant member of God's chosen people. Of course God would have mercy for him. That's not the part Jonah has trouble with. Ninevites are covenant enemies. No mercy for them. But there's another detail that we need to see. Who is it that appoints this plant? One of the keys to the book of Jonah is to track the names of God. We saw last week when God deals with Jonah, the covenant name of Yahweh, or Lord, is used. And when God deals with Nineveh, the name Elohim, or God as it's translated, is used. But here in verse 6, they're put together. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, appoints the plant. Both names used together are signifying, they're reminding us that God is the Lord of all. Yes, he's the covenant God, but he's also the God of all creation. Because elsewhere in the Bible, starting with Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, that's the first place where God is called Yahweh Elohim. We're highlighting that God is the creator, the sovereign ruler. God made everything. God is in charge of everything. And that's what this name calls to mind. And so between Jonah's eastward journey, this use of God's creator name, and then the Lord God's action of creating a plant out of the earth, which is then followed in verse 7 by a worm attack that leads to death, we should be thinking Genesis thoughts. We should have God's creation as sort of our frame of reference when we try to understand the story. Jonah is trying to set the terms of the story as covenantal terms. But God responds to him in creation terms. The clues in these verses are indicating that Yahweh Elohim is trying to foreground to Jonah his role as creator of all. And he wants that to be the foundation for the discussion. This is a creation story. It's not primarily a covenant story. But Jonah, of course, wants the discussion to start and stop with covenant. He's privileging one aspect of who God is, one glorious thing that God has done. Jonah loves the covenant, and he should love the covenant. But he needs to see the bigger picture. Jonah privileges the better for Jonah part of the story. And he forgets the bigger picture, the fullness of who God is. And when you limit who God is, you limit the mercy of God. When God responds, he's not going to deny Jonah's covenantal concerns. He doesn't say, the covenant doesn't matter anymore. 
He doesn't say, don't worry about the covenant, Jonah. He's simply zooming out to capture all of the concentric circles, we might say, of his mercy. Because God is merciful by nature. He has mercy for all that he's made. In a sense, because creation comes before God's covenant, creation is the condition in which covenants are made. Creations are the foundation for covenant. There is a focused and special mercy for covenant members that Jonah is right to remember. But covenant mercy is not the only kind of mercy that there is. God is trying to remind Jonah that there is creation mercy as well. And this is a big part of why the creation itself plays such a role in the book of Jonah. Have you noticed how many times the creation comes alive and enters the story? Sometimes it even becomes the main character. The sea, the desert, the wind, the whale, the sun, the worm, the plant, and yes, even the cows of Nineveh. Here's the point. God is not just the covenant God. He is also the creator God. And since the creator God is in his nature merciful, his mercy is as wide as his whole creation. Covenant is only one expression of God's mercy. There is more mercy in God. So look at verse 7. When morning comes, God commissions yet another creature, and Jonah wakes up to find that the worm of judgment has come and mercilessly eaten his beloved mercy plant, and now it's all withered. It no longer provides that life-preserving shade between Jonah and the burning sun and the scorching east wind. And at one level, this is a very simple parable. Nineveh, God says, is like the plant. Jonah wants the plant to receive mercy. And so God tells him, Jonah, then you should also want Nineveh to receive mercy. But hidden in this analogy is an amazing plan for Israel's future. In what way is Nineveh like this plant? And in fact, Jonah might respond, isn't there a pretty important way in which Nineveh is nothing like this plant? This plant is providing shade. It's keeping me alive. Nineveh wants me dead. Nineveh is attacking your people, God. They're nothing like a plant. So of course I would want mercy for a plant that's keeping me alive. And of course I wouldn't want mercy for this nation that wants me dead. So for this analogy, this parable to work, something deeper must be going on. How is Nineveh like this plant? Well, it seems like based on what then happens, the subsequent history of God's people and God's consistent pattern of how he uses other nations to teach his own people lessons, it seems that God plan is, God's plan is that somehow Nineveh will be a shade to Israel, in spite of also, at the same time, being that scorching east wind that comes to bring judgment against them. In the coming years, God is going to use Assyria to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. They've rebelled against God. Uh, Jonah has been sent to Israel to call them to repentance. But his voice is not being heard. Israel's not learning the lesson. They're not 
repenting. And so in the years to come, Assyria will judge God's people. And yes, this will be judgment. But in all of God's judgments, there is mercy. And so in order to preserve God's people in the midst of judgment, not from judgment, but in the midst of judgment, what has God done? Well, God has sent a prophet to this central city of Assyria to extend Yahweh's mercy to Nineveh. So that when Nineveh then comes to bring God's judgment against God's people, they will remember the mercy of God and have mercy on God's people. There'll be a shade to Israel, even while at the same time being that east wind. Nineveh that remembers how they were spared from destruction by Yahweh's mercy through the ministry of Yahweh's prophet is a Nineveh that will be prepared to remember to show Yahweh's mercy to Yahweh's people, even as they conquer them and lead them off into exile. And we can actually see this same lesson in God's other sign parable in the book of Jonah. Think of it this way. Israel is going to be thrown into the Gentile sea. That's what exile is all about. In their rebellion against God, Israel is going to be exiled. They're going to be disciplined, thrown into the sea. And in that Gentile sea, they're going to drown. Unless... God sends a whale to swallow them up. Another nation who will, yes, judge them, but also in a mysterious way, preserve them alive so that after God's appointed time, Israel can be vomited up back into their own land. This is God's plan. God has not forsaken his people and chosen Nineveh instead of Israel. He's choosing Nineveh to preserve Israel even in the midst of judgment. But Jonah is refusing to allow the idea that judgment will come at all. He's refusing to acknowledge that God could use a more wicked nation to judge God's own people. And we'll see this error again and again in Old Covenant history. But we should note that this is exactly the language that God uses to describe what he's going to do to the southern kingdom of Judah when the Babylonians, several hundred years later, are going to conquer Judah. Note down for later, look it up later, Jeremiah 51, 44 and 45, where Jeremiah describes Babylon as a sea monster that swallows up nations. But God promises that when the time is right, when God's work has been done, God himself will reach in and pull his people out of the mouth of that sea monster and restore them back to their land. That's the plan. That's God's goal. That's why he's softening up Nineveh, by giving them the opportunity to repent. Nineveh has the opportunity to become a faithful servant of God, bringing discipline against Israel in a righteous way. Nineveh also has the option to choose to bring that discipline in a sinful, self-aggrandizing way. And so God sends a prophet to help them to choose the better option. What looks like blessing God's enemies instead of God's people is actually God blessing everyone. Nineveh has the opportunity to turn from their sins and receive some of the blessings of God. 
Israel has the opportunity to learn to repent. And then in their time of exile to turn back quickly to God so that they can be restored to their land. That's how Nineveh is like a plant. They're going to be a shade that even in judgment preserves Israel. But sadly, what we learn from later history is that Nineveh does not remain faithful. In a couple short generations, they will have returned to their evil and wicked ways. They will not see themselves as God's instrument of judgment. They will see themselves as the mightiest empire on the earth, gobbling up nations for their own glory. And so in the book of Nahum, we'll read God's judgment falling on Nineveh. Jonah's right. God does not forget about justice. God does not allow the wicked to go unpunished. When the wicked become the repentant, God has mercy. But when they choose wickedness and evil, yes, justice does fall on the wicked. Jonah needs to trust. To trust in God's goodness, in his wisdom, and in his justice. But sadly as well, not only does Nineveh fail to become a good and kind whale, a shading plant, but the northern kingdom of Israel doesn't learn their lesson, that exile means it's time to repent. They persist in their unbelief, and when Assyria swallows up the northern kingdom, those ten tribes disappear from God's story. They're not returned to their land. They don't come back. What if Jonah had spent 40 days teaching repentant Ninevites how to follow God instead of spending 40 days sulking under his booth, angry at God's mercy? Turning back to the text, Jonah's reaction to God's merciless treatment of the plant takes us right back to Jonah's death wish from chapter 4, verse 3. Only now, God has inverted the picture. Now, Jonah wants to die because God didn't show mercy to the plant, when before he wanted to die because God did show mercy to Nineveh. But notice in this situation that God has arranged that Jonah's covenantal objection has been taken out of the picture. This plant is not God's special covenant plant. It has no special covenant promises of God's mercy. But Jonah furiously expects God to be merciful to the plant anyway. Because it's better for Jonah that the plant provide him with shade. So God repeats his question from earlier, this time with reference to the plant. Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And with this plant-based buffer... Jonah says, well, if we're just talking about the plant, he finally answers, yes, it's right for me to be so deathly angry. It's completely unjust for mercy to be taken away once it's been given. Because we're just talking about the plant, Jonah does not seem to realize that's exactly what he's been trying to get God to do to Nineveh, to take away the promised mercy, to judge them anyway. But with the plant, he gets it. And so, good. God, in essence, responds. We agree on that. But Jonah, this plant didn't cost you anything. 
You didn't make this plant grow. You didn't care for this plant. The plant grew one night and it died the next. All you've got to lose here is the blessing of free shade. God's raising the issue of standing to Jonah. Do you have standing to bring your complaint before God? What is this plant to you, Jonah? You're the one who's been acting like outside the covenant, all bets are off when it comes to mercy. Now, God is not trying to convince Jonah that he shouldn't actually pity the plant. He's showing Jonah that he needs more than selfish reasons to ask for mercy. Mercy is the right response, Jonah. But why is it the right response? Because it's better for you? Or is there a deeper reason to show mercy? And so then, God brings the discussion back to Nineveh. Okay, we're not talking about the plant. He argues from the lesser to the greater. Jonah, if you are blazing with righteous anger, when this short-lived, soulless plant doesn't get mercy, how much more should I have mercy on a great city full of lost people? 120,000 is Israel's standard big number, how we might use a million or a billion. And God says, there's this city full of people and also much cattle. You're mad at me for not having mercy on the shrubbery, Jonah, and you won't let me have mercy on this whole city? God is full of better reasons to show mercy to Nineveh than to a plant. Nineveh is huge. Look at how many people it has. A plant is just a plant, Jonah. Nineveh's full of people with souls. Plants don't have souls the way people have souls. And because Ninevites have souls, the destruction of Nineveh has eternal consequences. A plant grows one day and it's gone the next. Ask any parent how much labor it takes to grow and nurture a child. God has fathered this whole city. He's cared for these people their whole lives. His sun has risen on them, just and unjust. His rain has fallen on them, righteous and unrighteous. These are people made in God's image. Are they wicked? Yes. But are they repentant? Yes, they are. It's possible that God uses this phrase, they don't know their right hand from their left, as a reference to keeping God's law. That's how he uses it in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Old Testament. Israel, it says, needed to be careful not to turn from the right hand or from the left, but to keep God's law. Nineveh doesn't have the law. Nineveh doesn't know how to live in a way that pleases God, not the way Israel does. They do have the shattered remnants of a functioning conscience. But it's nothing like the covenant law book that God's people have. It's not that ignorance takes away their guilt. It doesn't. But it does mitigate their guilt. By that measure, who's more evil, Jonah? Ignorant Nineveh or rebellious Israel? Ignorant Nineveh or God's own prophet? Who knows more? Who ought to be better positioned to obey God? To whom much is given. Of him, much will be required. Jonah thought that God should be especially merciless to Nineveh because they were so lawless. But it's exactly the opposite. God says, I need to have mercy on Nineveh because they don't have the law. They don't know their right hand from their left. 
And I think we see here one more thread to connect the book of Jonah to Jesus, who absolutely hammers the scribes and the Pharisees, the people of the covenant law. If anyone knows their right hand from their left, it's the scribes and Pharisees. And if anybody gets mercy from Jesus, it's prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, people who don't know their right hand from their left. And notice that it also doesn't affect God's argument to raise the issue of the difference between a sinless plant getting mercy and a sinful people getting mercy. Because Jonah doesn't actually have a problem with mercy being shown to sinners. Jonah knows himself to be a sinner and thinks that mercy is just fine for sinners like Jonah. Covenant people, sinners. What Jonah can't allow is that God's mercy would extend outside the covenant. Sin doesn't forfeit mercy. Sin is the whole reason we need mercy. Mercy's meant for sinners, but here's what Jonah missed. Here's what he can't see. Mercy comes not by covenant keeping, but by faith. Nineveh believes God. They take him at his word and they repent. And so God has mercy on them. Isn't this the same thing that rattled that old Pharisee Paul to his core? When he learned that true sons of Abraham are not biological offspring of Abraham that keep the covenant, but anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, anyone who shares the faith of Abraham. This is the gospel breaking into the book of Jonah. You cannot earn mercy by law-keeping. That's not what mercy is. You receive mercy as a gracious gift when you believe God, like Abraham believed God, like the Ninevites believed God, like anyone and everyone who lays aside any claim that they think they have to merit God's mercy and simply puts their faith in Christ alone for salvation. Well, what a phrase to end the book on. And also, much cattle. Finally, we've worked back down to the closest comparison to a plant. Why should the livestock that Nineveh cares for suffer? Who's going to milk and feed the cows if God does what Jonah wants and erases all the Ninevites? The argument is simple, and it's a little bit humorous, but it's also devastating for Jonah. If a plant should receive mercy, then an animal should receive mercy. If an animal should receive mercy, then human beings should receive mercy. If a human being should receive mercy, then certainly a great city full of human beings should receive mercy. God cares about plants and sparrows and cows and whales, and God cares so much more for you and for all people created in his image. So why does Yahweh Elohim, the sovereign creator, have mercy on Nineveh? Because God made each and every Ninevite in his image. He labored to care for them, called them to repentance, and because they believed his word, and responded in repentance and faith. For us, what a blessing it is to know not only creation mercy, not only covenant mercy, but the mercy of God in Christ. 
Christ who entered into creation to show us the absolute fullness of God's mercy, to suffer and die in our place, to rise again, to ascend to God's right hand, where he now sits interceding for us, asking God to show mercy to you. These different aspects of creation mercy, covenant mercy, mercy of God in Christ, they're not in competition. They're all coming together in Jesus. So as Christians, we are called to show special covenant mercy to God's people. We're reminded of that in our membership vows. But we're also called to extend the mercy of God as wide as his creation extends. Especially to a city full of people who don't know their right hand from their left. God has poured out his mercy on you. So you too pour out God's mercy on your city, on your neighbors. So as we come to the end of the book of Jonah, hear this charge from Jesus in light of God's great mercy. Love your enemies and do good, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God, what can we do but marvel at your mercy? Lord, when we don't understand your ways, when we're mystified by how you can allow evil to flourish, why it seems like you have mercy on the wicked and punish the righteous. Father, when we're confused, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, would you teach us to ask this question, do we do well to be angry and to replace our anger with trust that your plan is good? That in ways that we may not see or understand, you are engineering blessings, shade, salvation for us. May we take these lessons to heart. May we receive your mercy with gladness and with thankfulness. May we become not only recipients of mercy, but vessels of mercy who carry this mercy with us and who shower this mercy as wide as your creation to the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, and amen.